This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Here I was coming across canoe builders and filigree jewelers and librarians on donkeys and people who, no matter what their situations were, found a way to live their lives with purpose and with meaning and with impact. Hi guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer. And today we have another travel writer on the show who I really admire, not just because he is a beautiful writer, but also because he shares our values of what travel should be, exploring deeply, authentically, and connecting with local people and cultures, and trying to find the stories that matter, the stories that aren't just amazing to hear. And this one is Pablo Escobar's Hippos, anyone? They're stories that are also important and make a difference. Are you ready? Yeah, me too. Let's go. What does it take to really know a place? When Jordan Salama first visited Colombia, he traveled to half a dozen cities, he loved it, but he knew he had barely scratched the surface. Three years later, he returned determined to dive deeper, but he wanted to do it in a really unique way. He decided to journey down the entire length of the Magdalena River, which cuts through the heart of Colombia, from its origins in the misty Andes to its mouth at the windswept coastline of the Caribbean Sea. It's a fantastic adventure, and his book of his journey is called Every Day, The River Changes. It's a beautifully written and insightful book and a must read for anyone interested in Colombia, which you should be. It's one of my favorite countries. So check it out. You can find it wherever you get your books, especially your local bookshop. Go and support them. Or you can visit jordansalama.com to find out more. I'll put that link up in the show notes too. But before we put in for our paddle, I'm going to ask you for a huge favor. If you like this show, please help us spread the word. We are building a community of people who love adventure, love travel, and want to help spread our message of love for the outdoors, living life to the full, and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours. If that sounds like you, and you might have a friend or two that you think would like this show, then please let them know, post about it, whatever you can do. It makes a huge difference, and it's a great way to support the show. So thank you so much. Please also connect with me on social media. If you love travel and adventure, we're going to get on well. I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Armchair Explorer Podcast. You can also sign up for the newsletter at armchair-explorer.com. Lots of cool stuff in there. And if you're feeling particularly generous, buy me a pint. For less than the cost of a single frothy beverage, you can become a patron of the show and join our Explorers Club with a bunch of exclusive benefits, including ad-free shows. But for now, get ready because we are about to set off on a voyage of discovery and adventure into the hearts of one of the most beautiful but misunderstood countries in the world. Jordan wrote Every Day the River Changes after a trip he made there during his senior year of college. But 
His fascination began a few years before that, when he went there on an internship his freshman year. I was based in Cali, but I got to travel throughout the country. I went to the Pacific coast, I went to the Darien Gap, that area between Panama and Colombia that's impassable by road, just swaths of jungle. I visited small communities in the northern wetlands that were working to protect rare river turtles. And across all of these places, what I realized was that Colombia was this unbelievably diverse country, both in people and in landscapes, and it was filled with stories. And at one point on this trip, when I was staying in the home of this elderly grandmother of a friend of mine who locked the door every night at 7 p.m. and didn't let me leave after the sun went down as her way of keeping me safe, I started keeping a journal of my interaction. And in those sweaty nights under my friend Sandra's grandmother's curfew, I started writing down, you know, stories about the people who I met, the places that I visited, and that was the beginning of this project. A few years later, when it came time for me to write my senior thesis, I was thinking maybe I wanted to write about a river, a place that was, just, you know, about people and nature and how, you know, communities interact with the natural world around them. And I looked back at those journals and I remembered that a lot of people told me about this place, the Magdalena, that if I wanted to understand Colombia, I had to travel the length of this river, something that a lot of Colombian people wanted to do, but not many have. And I decided, okay, you know what? Why not? Unfortunately, many people around the world know Colombia primarily as the backdrop for its years of political and drug-related violence. And while it has undeniably had problems, that stereotype has never been a fair portrayal of this varied, friendly, and truly amazing country. I went in with a kind of intent and focus to write a story that could perhaps push back on some of the negative stereotypes that characterize Colombia and Latin America more broadly, which are stereotypes of violence, of drugs, of conflict and bloodshed and fear. But that said, I think that there is this kind of culture of, or at least in the places where I visited and the people who I spoke with, manifested this idea that they lived in a place that was very special, that had touches of magic. I think that a lot of that might come from two sources that might conflate in some cases, which is one being that this is a huge culture of folk tales and legends. All across the Magdalena, folk tales and legends serve a very important purpose. And then there is the very seminal influence of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the most famous writer, of course, in the history of Colombia. He is thought to have invented the genre of magical realism in Latin America, at least. And in large part, he was inspired by the Magdalena, which was the river of his childhood. And so I think that as a result of his stories, which have since been conflated by people who I spoke with with real life, like people like to make a joke, like they call it fiction, but really it's the story of our lives. I think that there's these like interesting intersecting lines of what is considered to be magic, quote unquote, and what's considered to be real. Marquez's magical realism is a wonderful combination of fantasy and reality, like a dream state where the real world is infused with subtle enchantments, which in many ways, especially here by the banks of the Magdalena, it is. Jordan began his journey to the river's origin. It was difficult, but it was also beautiful. A remote lagoon nestled high in the Andes, bordered with scrubby brown plants and dotted with mist. He woke up with the roosters before sunrise, riding in a crowded pickup truck through the winding roads and crawling higher into the mountains with each turn. 
In his book, he writes, As the sun rose, the Colombian massive began to stir. The fog lifted. In a clearing along the pavement, a woman milked a bloated cow. Red and white buses filled with schoolchildren fought for passage on the narrow roads with horse-drawn carts and cargo mules. At every turn, as our pickup trucks swerved around countless bends with steep cliffs, it became increasingly apparent just how far this vast landscape seemed to extend. The closest town to the source of the river was called Quinchana. And to get there is difficult enough. You have to take a two-hour pickup truck ride where you're kind of hanging on the back of this pickup truck, your hands gripping the cold metal bars of the roof, and you're going down these like bumpy Andean roads. And you get to this town, which is just kind of one strip that's about a mile long. We crossed a footbridge and went up a mule path to a smaller settlement a little bit higher up in the mountains that is only reachable by pack animal or by foot. It was called La Gaitana. And in La Gaitana, there was this very old archaeological site. This area called the Macizo Colombiano, the Colombian Massif, is known for these megalithic statues hidden, tucked away in the crags and mountaintops of this very hilly region. And because of the long-running conflict, for a long time, many corners of this massif were pretty unreachable, at least for outsiders. It was very small, very quiet, and most importantly, the river was almost untouched by human hands at that point still. It was clear. It looked like you could drink from it. Clear river that you know is going to turn into this huge behemoth later down, just a few more, a hundred miles more, you know, downstream. Jordan wasn't traveling alone. His guide was an acclaimed anthropologist, Luis Manuel Salamanca, whose devoted efforts to preserve Colombia's cultural heritage sites had garnered him national recognition. They trekked onward, slogging through mud, crossing rickety suspension bridges, and sweating profusely as the sun began its ascent in earnest. Finally, after many hours, they arrived at their destination. I remember being with Luis Manuel Salamanca atop this hill in La Gaitana near the archaeological site, looking over the river, looking over the small town below with steam rising from the chimneys of some of these houses, which seemed to meld with the clouds and looked like steam was rising from the river itself. And Luis Manuel Salamanca said something that I'm never going to forget, which is the peace process in Colombia is like buying an abandoned farm. He said, you have to put the seeds down, put a lot of effort into it, and then wait for the results to show, and that it could take a long time. And that was a very important observation for him to make to me at the very beginning of this journey, because it ended up informing a lot of the conversations that I would have about conflict and peacemaking and the environment even further down. Tragically, while Luis Manuel Salamanca was waiting for his seeds of peace to flourish, he was murdered just a year after he guided Jordan up to the Laguna Magdalena. And while his assailant was never found, it's strongly suspected that Salamanca's outspoken efforts to preserve natural resources and cultural heritage were the reason for his assassination. Salamanca's family, friends, and community continue to remember and honor him as a man of unmatched passion, dedication, and kindness. 
Jordan had seen the origin of the Magdalena, and in the weeks that followed, he continued north, down currents that quickly grew into roaring eddies and through thick clouds of buzzing mosquitoes. He visited the small town of Girardot, known as Colombia's hottest city, a cursed honor, he writes. He explored pungent fish markets, wandered through eerie abandoned wharfs, and paddled in a wooden canoe under the beating sun. Several days later, he departed for the second leg of his trip, the Magdaleno Medio, or Middle Magdalena. But when he arrived at this section of the river, which he writes was dotted with towns situated directly on the banks following one after another like a line of leaf-cutter ants, he encountered something very strange that was a legacy of Colombia's checkered past. The story of the hippopotamuses of Colombia is one that has now been told way too often, but I think that it still has interesting implications if you look at it in the right way and, and try to understand it in the full situation that it is. Pablo Escobar, who has had such an outsized influence in how people perceive Colombia, had four hippopotamuses as part of this like exotic zoo that he kept in his house, not too far from the Magdalena River along a tributary. and. When he was killed in the 1990s, they didn't know what to do with the hippos, so they kind of just left them there. And a couple of them escaped into the river and had more hippo babies, and now there are lots of hippopotamuses, some think hundreds of hippopotamuses, an invasive species, in the basin of the Magdalena River in Colombia. This is a huge ecological disaster. I mean, how the hippos are changing the actual riverbed and the makeup of the water and all that is being studied by biologists, how they're impacting small farmers because they are very dangerous animals is also being investigated by a lot of different people. Pablo Escobar is the personification of Colombia's turbulent past. Head of the ruthless Medellin drug cartel, he quickly earned the nickname King of Cocaine and became the wealthiest criminal in history, terrorizing Medellin's residents and putting Colombia on the map as the murder capital of the world. Escobar's estate along the Magdalena, Hacienda Napoles, stretched over seven square miles and included a bullfighting arena, a brothel, a Formula One racetrack, and of course, because why wouldn't you if you were a billionaire drug lord, an exotic zoo, and even after 30 years, catching sight of a hippo wandering around a small rural hamlet in the middle of Colombia is bizarre. But it's also a problem. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way.
Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I definitely wanted to see them for myself because I think a lot is written about these hippos as a kind of cartoonish statement to be made about Colombia as a violent, crazy place, which is, again, is exactly the kind of story that I was trying to push back against. And so to go and see them was not to leave them out, but to tell that story in a way that I was getting close to it and, you know, speaking with a lot of people who were being impacted by their presence and understanding from the perspective of scientists who were trying to control the population, all that's going on in, you know, with that problem of the invasive hippopotamuses of Colombia. Of course, that meant that we had to take a small boat out to see them. And because the river has this big problem, which because of deforestation and ranching and grazing, a lot of sediment has poured into the river over the years and it's gotten to be very shallow in some places. And droughts have exacerbated low rainfall, so there's not a lot of water at that time. The boat that I was on, the motor got stuck in the bottom sediment of this shallow part of the river. And we turned our heads together. And as we did, there were two hippopotamuses wallowing in the shallows baring their teeth, and we all were terrified. Because as you know, and as I, as I learned, hippopotamuses are some of the most aggressive animals that you could come across in the wild. But then luckily at the very last you know, minute, as soon as we, we noticed what was happening, the motor roared back to life and we sped away. So all was, all was well. But though we were able to speed away, that doesn't mean that certain people are able to escape this. I mean, people who live on small patches of land and farm to subsist on what they grow or what they ranch, like, you know, I talked with some fishermen whose boats got bumped by hippos, who've been chased off their land by hippos. It's a big problem, and they still don't really know what the best solution is to fix it. Whether it's the hippos or things like overfishing or any kind of environmental problem that is associated with, with this river, often there is this challenge, this, you know, conflict, this dichotomy between what has become the issue of the survival of the river and or the survival of the people. And I think that where I was most impacted and most taken by the people who I met were when I met people who were trying to work towards a goal of making those two things not mutually exclusive, that the survival of humans and the survival of the river could exist, you know, hand in hand. His next stop was Estacion Corcona, a village nestled in the sprawling countryside surrounding the middle Magdalena. As he traveled, he writes, only by the light of the moon were we able to make out the silhouettes of the long verdant plains, strewn with small grassy mounds and slumbering cows on either side of our route. His destination was a mere speck in the rolling hills, barely registering on most maps. And to get there, he'd have to leave the Magdalena's waters. But for the final leg of this trip, he wouldn't be taking a car, a train, or even a pickup truck. He was doing something a lot more fun than that. And the way that's most popular with the people who live there is this contraption called a moto balinera. It's actually way more popular than anybody would expect for something as strange as this. It's this wooden platform with railroad wheels affixed to the bottom of the platform on a railroad track, powered by a motorcycle, the back wheel of which is also on the railroad track and propelling this thing forward, kind of like a mini train. And supposedly the railroad track is quote unquote abandoned or the train doesn't pass by too often. But somebody was whispering about like, if you saw the headlights of the train like coming towards you, you had to be ready to jump. 
And I, you know, you don't love to hear that, but luckily, I mean, here I am, the train didn't come. It was like 9 p.m. when I took it, and the sun had already set, and we were whizzing through the darkness, and only by the light of the moon and the stars could you see, like, the verdant hills in the distance and see the flashing of white fireflies. An eagle would, like, jut off from the bush, and, you know, a dog that was sleeping along the tracks would wake up as we were coming close, even though we were pretty small, right, as a group of travelers. It was me and maybe six other people sitting on plastic lawn chairs, on this wooden platform powered by a motorcycle down an abandoned railroad track. And in the distance, there were these bolts of silent lightning. And you could tell that a rainstorm was going to come. But only a few hours later, once I was tucked into bed, did the rain come and lift that horrible heat from the land. So that was the Motobalinera, which is a really interesting way to get anywhere. And so if you're told that that is the way to get somewhere, I think that should be the first indication that you should definitely go. <laughs> Because that place is going to be very interesting. And sure enough, Estación Cocorna was very interesting. After riding on the Moto Balanera, racing through the night, accompanied by blinking fireflies and distant silent lightning, Jordan finally arrived at Estación Corcona. I had been there for a few days at that point, and I was feeling the effects of the very, very oppressive heat. I wasn't quite satisfied with what I'd found story-wise, I think for me, I was just feeling a lot of different feelings. I read about it here. Tourists hardly ever came to Estación Cocorna. One morning, I woke up surprised to hear the rumble of several jeeps passing by my window. They were transporting a group of light-skinned Medellin day-trippers who had come from a float down the river Cocorna in large inner tubes. Led by a young tour operator who wore a Boston Red Sox baseball cap and spoke perfect English, the tourists were as surprised to see me as I was to see them. After several sleepless nights in the insufferable heat, I hated myself for feeling relieved that outsiders had come, because they reminded me of the unspoken sense of freedom and privilege that we shared, the sense that, unlike the people who lived here, we could always leave. This made me deeply uncomfortable. But Jordan still had days to spend in Estación Corcona. He spent an afternoon fishing using a homemade dough that smelled like chili. He played guitar for his hosts, a spontaneous concert of their favorite song ever, over and over again, Wonderwall by Oasis, because even there, in the midst of one of the wildest places on earth, everyone knows how to sing along to Wonderwall. And then he accompanied his host, Isabel, upriver to wide sandy shores where she released baby turtle hatchlings, dozens of the tiny black reptiles, he writes, scurrying into the water, away from the outstretched arms of the people, Colombians reclaiming their nature as Isabel saw it. But soon it was time to leave, and the next part of his journey would take him to Bajo Magdalena or Lower Magdalena. He sailed downstream in a rickety old boat called a chalupa, painted in bright greens, reds, and yellows, bouncing on top of the river's swirling currents. He passed through plantation country, gliding by mile-long rows of oil palms, papaya, and mango. And then as the miles stretch on, he eventually switched out his seat on board for a seat in a taxi, which took him further north down narrow, dusty roads to a small town called Mompaz. I always find my way back to Mompaz. I don't know why. It has that attractive quality of mix of stories, of charm, of wonderful people. And it's really hard to get to, so you feel like you have the whole place to yourself from a visitor's perspective. People like to say who live there, Mompos is like the Cartagena that Colombia forgot. 
It is very old. This, a lot of the you know main sections of the old quarter of Mompos are cobblestone streets and huge, beautiful plazas with large churches and sweeping archways and Spanish-style homes with verdant courtyards. And at night, bolts of, again, silent lightning, like just light up the sky and bats come down onto the plaza. And somehow there's always music and dancing around and older people sitting on rocking chairs outside the you know front front doors of their houses and a branch of the river flowing lazily by it's a it's a really it's the place that i would come close to describing as a magical place without reservation because that's exactly the word that everybody uses to describe it who live there in fact monpoz is fabled to be the inspiration behind the fictional town of macondo the setting of gabriel garcia marquez's famous novel 100 years of solitude marquez's dreamlike style of writing blending subtle fantastical elements into an otherwise faithful reproduction of our world blurred the lines between myth and reality much like monpoz itself here, as in Macondo, the town sleeps during long, hot afternoons, sipping on cold citrus juice to wait out the heat. Spanish-style colonial homes painted in bright reds and canary yellows are lined with open-air hallways fringed with palm fronds. And then when the sun set, the cobblestone plazas would erupt with spontaneous music and dancing in the dim lights of the warm evening. It was here that Jordan encountered somebody who would define Montpoz for him, someone strikingly similar to the protagonist of Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, Colonel Oriolano Buendia, who spends his days toiling away at his workshop, casting, melting down, and reshaping tiny golden fishes in an endless cycle. In Montpoz, somebody who I will never forget is Simon Villanueva, a filigree jeweler, 89 years old when I met him who'd spent 75 plus years sitting on his front porch, crafting these beautiful jewels of silver and gold filigree. Filigree being this, you know, this art form that came originally from Mesopotamia and has migrated throughout the centuries and the millennia and found its way to Latin America, but Mompos being one of the only places where it's still regularly practiced as an industry in the region. So, well, what he used to say to me was, I live in love with my work. I live in love with my work. And he just was so happy doing what he was doing and he could not imagine doing anything else. Even though beside him, his glass cabinet filled up with, you know, hundreds of these little jewels because there weren't that many people who were around to buy them. He just kept going. And I think that there's something to be said at great lengths about his level of passion and his dedication to spend his entire life doing the thing that makes him happiest and that brings him the most satisfaction and meaning, which, if somebody's reading this book, is one of the main messages that I will hope somebody will take away, is that almost everybody who I speak with along the Magdalena River are doing things because they think that it brings meaning to their community, to themselves, that they're living life with purpose. And I think that it, there's a takeaway that the rest of us who don't dedicate our lives to one particular focused craft can still apply to our own lived experiences in the sense that we would all hope that we're doing things that we're passionate about, that bring our lives meaning, that bring meaning to the lives of the people who we care about and the people around us. And I think that's a very overarching theme throughout my travel down the, the Magdalena River. 
It was here too that he met another real-life character seemingly lifted directly from the pages of one of Marquez's books, Luis Soriano, also known as Colombia's donkey librarian. As a young teacher in the inland hills of the Bajo Madalena, Soriano began to notice that none of his students were completing their schoolwork or making any progress with their reading. And while he initially blamed himself, he soon realized that many of them simply lived in such isolated areas that they had no access to books. And so one morning, he took a stack of books and a donkey and set off before dawn into the countryside, delivering books to the children who needed them most. I followed him into the countryside on his donkeys, bringing books to rural school children who didn't have access to, to reading materials to practice at home. And once again, I was completely enamored by somebody who was making real grassroots change in the place where he lived. He actually goes from house to house because his students live on these like rural, you know, areas of land and there's a farmhouse and, you know, it's a long walk or motorcycle ride to work, uh, to school, to libraries. And so he, instead he brings the books to them, which is amazing. These people and the ways that they live and the ways that they carry themselves and the way that just even that they think about the things that they're doing is a mindset that's valuable for a lot of people thinking, well, man, what am I going to do with my life? Is it going to be something that I'm going to do because everybody else is doing it and I think that I should and I think it's what's going to make me the most money? Or is there some kind of middle ground that I can find where I could still live a fruitful, comfortable life, but also a life that I feel has meaning, purpose, and impact? Jordan had come to Colombia because he wanted to push back against the stereotypes of this country and its people whom he had come to love. He wanted to push back against the prevailing narrative of violence and drugs and show the real Colombia hidden behind those thin facades. And what he discovered was a place where lives were guided by community, where purpose and meaning were discovered in small things, in jewelry made for the love of the arts, in traveling donkeys, in the bravery and tragedy of Louis Salamanca and the people who are fighting still for the land they love. And just like Garcia Marquez's dreams, Jordan's path was guided by stories, by enchantment, by people of resilience and light. And the closer he came to the end, the more he realized how much these stories echoed the essence of the river itself. Rivers have this really special power of connecting disparate peoples and cultures across space and time. I think that it's a very interesting concept to travel the entire length of one single river, which, you know, the end of that river might be extremely different from the beginning, and all the places in between might be changing constantly. But the one thing that is constant is the water that is passing through all of these spaces. The end of the journey was really interesting because the literal end of the river was the only place where I was traveling entirely by myself. I was scrambling along some rocks for the better part of about a mile on this jetty that stretches out to the very end of the river where it comes crashing with this huge force into the Caribbean Sea. And the wind was whipping and it's crystal clear in my head because there are so many little details that once again, much like all the details I encountered along the Magdalena that each had a deeper meaning behind them with stories and things. It was as if all of those most important details suddenly appeared at the very last second for me as I was coming in like turning back to face this grand river 
of a country that I had not had any experience in before, but had come to really love and make forge lifelong friendships in. There were plastic bottles that reminded me of the environmental degradation. There was a brown coffee-colored river crashing with a deep blue sea, both violent and chaotic in their own ways. And then there were kites. There were these people flying kites and all along the river because I traveled largely in August, it was the month of kite flying throughout the country and this wind kind of swept over the land and kids and adults alike everywhere were flying kites. And in this last moment, this last hurrah of this river before the murky brown river crashed with the beautiful glimmering blue sea, there were these fishermen who were fishing with kites. And I thought that this was just the most incredible confluence of symbols that marked this trip. And it couldn't have been written from fiction in a better way, but it was real. I'd seen a country that defied common evocations, he writes, and reminded me to look for megalithic statues in the mountains and colorful wooden canoes and filigree jewelers in towns with cobblestone streets. He had traveled almost a thousand miles, and finally, now, he had reached the end of his journey, the mouth of the Magdalena River. I was thinking at that moment of all the people I'd met and all the places that I'd been, all the people who had helped me along the way, all the voices that I'd left in, all the voices that I'd left out, and how I'd changed as a result of all this. This was by far, continues to be a story about people written in congruence with people, with local voices taking kind of center stage. And I, for large part, wanted to kind of stay out of it. But what I realized in writing the book after the fact was that it was important for me as kind of the narrator to be expressing the truth, which was that I was seeing this world through my own eyes. And therefore, not only was I learning about this world and these communities and these people, but they were teaching me something too. And this journey had changed me in a way too. And it took me a long time to realize what profound impact this work that I like to think about as kind of trading in stories, how that changed my view of the world, how it in large part made me sure of the fact that I wanted to be a writer, that I wanted to tell the true amazing stories of life and of humanity for as long as I'm able. And that's what I'm doing now. And I feel very grateful for that. And I think if there's anything that kind of characterizes the whole book, it's that. It's that these are encounters that show you that if you open your mind and open your heart and have conversations with people and be empathetic and be respectful and have a cultural exchange, you can find stories and friendships that are so beautifully amazing that they could be written out of a storybook. But it's truth. Thank you so much, Jordan. Thank you for taking us on this adventure. The book is called Every Day the River Changes. It's a beautifully written and insightful book and a must read for anyone interested in Colombia, which if you weren't already, I'm sure you are now. So check it out. You can find it wherever you get your books or just visit jordansalama.com to find out more. I'll put that link up in the show notes as well. 
So thank you so much for listening, guys. And don't forget to share this show with your friends. Connect with me on Instagram and Facebook at Armchair Explorer Podcast. And if you can, become a patron of the show to help us continue to bring these stories to you. You can find out more about that at patreon.com forward slash Armchair Explorer Podcast. The link is in the show notes too. So that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of this community. Until next time, keep your boat afloat. Keep looking for that magic, that enchantment, wherever you are. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. This episode was produced by Armchair Productions, the audio experts for the travel industry. Find out about our other shows at armchair-productions.com. Jenny Allison co-produced the show with me and Charles Tyree did the audio editing and sound design. And I think you'll agree they did an amazing job. Thanks for listening.